Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Please be advised, the following episode contains references to violence and may not be suitable for all audiences. Welcome to Veterans You Should Know, a podcast from iHeartRadio that celebrates the men and women who have honorably answered a call to serve their country in the armed forces. I'm Rob Riggle, actor, comedian, and former Marine. Oh, in this special series honoring Veterans Day, I'll be speaking with four incredible veterans as they detail challenges they've faced and how their experiences in military service serve them in their everyday civilian lives. In this episode, I'm speaking with Brad Snyder. Brad served as an explosive ordnance disposal officer in the United States Navy. That means disarming bombs, people. The way that most people have seen our community is like through the movie, The Hurt Locker, where you've got someone with either a robot or a bomb suit, and they have the ability to get down on top of that device and then do something to it to put it in a safer spot. And that was largely my deployment to Iraq. On his second deployment in Afghanistan, Brad stepped on an improvised explosive device, which detonated and left him permanently blinded. In the process of his rehabilitation and recovery, he was encouraged to try out for the Paralympics due to his background in competitive swimming. Today, Brad is a five-time gold medalist competing in swimming and paratriathlon for Team USA. Through his experiences, he strives to inspire future generations to embrace a life of leadership and civic duty. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And before we get going, I, I think we'd be remiss if I didn't thank you for your service as well. Well, you're very kind to say that. But today is about you, Brad. <laughs> and we want to hear your story because I think it's one of the most fascinating stories, truly uh, one of overcoming so much. And there's so many great lessons and takeaways to your story that I, I want people to hear. I want them to truly understand it. And I want them to feel what it takes and what the mindset is to do what you've done. So, well, yeah, let's just dive in, if you don't mind. I, I want to pick your brain on so many things. Sure. Let's start with how did you come to the military? 
It's a great question and, and something I thought a lot about because I never made a decision to join the Navy. I think I just grew up always knowing that I would. Three out of four of my grandparents were all in the Navy in various capacities, all in and around World War II. My mom's dad, my grandfather, served in the Battle of Midway. Oh, wow. He dropped torpedoes out at Japanese subs and ships. So just sort of always knew from an age of like three onward that I wanted to be like my grandfather and follow in his footsteps and join the Navy. Brad had a choice to make. He had made up his mind to join the military, but there are three paths one can take to receive a commission as a naval officer. An ROTC scholarship at a civilian university, a degree and then officer candidate school, or the Naval Academy. I got to visit the Naval Academy my sophomore year of high school. My uncle was also in the Navy. He was a, an 06 JAG at the time, working at the Pentagon. And we went and visited them in Virginia and kind of on a whim, he said, do you want to go visit the Naval Academy? And I thought, yeah, why not? And just instantly fell in love with the place. I've shared this story a handful of times. What I thought was so cool is you watch this brigade of midshipmen. They go out for noon formation and it's just this big mob of black and white. And they all start yelling stuff that you don't understand at the time. They're doing accountability or whatever, and they're yelling. And I remember watching them walk by, and each of them had their name stitched on their shirt. And I remember being in high school thinking, man, how cool is it that they're so important that they have their name stitched in their shirt? Like, nobody knows my <laughs> name. My name is meaningless. But here, like, your name is really important. And that was really cool to me. Uh, so I, I first and foremost wanted to go to the Naval Academy, and I pursued that with quite a lot of vigor. But my backup plans were go to ROTC somewhere. Anyway, that's how I kind of dialed in on the Naval Academy. Brad had just begun his senior year in high school when the attacks of September 11th occurred. But that didn't deter him from his call to service. On September 11, 2001, I remember I was in English class and someone ran into the room to say, turn on the TV. And it was just in time to see the towers still there, but smoking. And then uh, while we were all watching, the towers came down. So, you know, I, I had already wanted to join the Navy. I felt like I was fulfilling sort of like a familial duty or a legacy kind of thing. But then all of a sudden with the towers coming down, you know, it's our generation's fight. You know, that's what we were all signing up to do. It gave my service such a galvanized purpose, I suppose, was the right way of saying it. Yes, it did crystallize things. Crystallize, that's a better word. People saw a need and they were ready to jump in. And I think that's really outstanding. I think there weren't a whole lot of people who strayed away from, you know, stepping up and joining when there was a time and a need. I think you're right, too. I remember I was in New York on 9-11 and my reserve unit, I had just left active duty and my reserve unit was activated. I was a captain at the time. But I remember the, the vibe, if you will, of everybody around, everybody in the city and the country for that matter, everybody wanted to do something, anything. And I remember people were bringing down boxes of clothes and, you know, they, they just didn't know what to do. They're bringing blankets. They were bringing things that didn't necessarily need, we needed, nobody needed down there, but they, they were compelled to do something. They were compelled to take part or feel like they could help in some way. And I felt actually blessed that I was in the service. So I volunteered to go back on active duty and I was able to scratch that itch, so to speak. I was able to serve because I was in a position to, but I, I do remember that feeling across the country and especially in New York, there was a desire to serve, to get involved. So I was, I guess, happy and, and it felt good 
from a patriotic sense to know that when the country was in crisis, you know, it was nice to see people respond. Yeah, for sure. And, and you were obviously one of those people. So thank you for staying the course. According to the USO, over 250,000 people swore an oath to serve in the active duty and reserve military forces following the attacks of 9-11, many of them vowing to make sure something so horrible never was repeated. Brad continued to follow his dream and entered the Naval Academy the year following 9-11. From day one, life at the Naval Academy was full speed ahead. Brad had a stacked course load of engineering classes, a 24-7 indoctrination to military culture and knowledge. And on top of that, he was part of the Academy's competitive swim team. It was an exhaustive schedule, but Brad balanced it all and never lost sight of the lessons he learned. It was tough, but it really did force me to grow up quickly. I learned how to manage time. I learned how to organize myself. I learned how to learn quickly. I think that's a real important skill, especially in the military. And I learned, you know, with the right amount of those sub-skills, you can survive and you can thrive in an environment like that. And uh, I think the Navy was definitely a lot like that. I was always keeping a lot of balls in the air. And, and honestly, that hasn't stopped even transitioning out of the military. I'm still in exactly that same boat, just trying to keep everything up in the air. They push you beyond your perceived limits. We all have limits, we think. We all think, oh man, I, I couldn't do this, or you know, I could never run a marathon, or I could never do X, Y, or Z. But then when you get in the military and you start doing things and they hold you to a very high standard, you realize that what you uh, thought were your limits are not. Okay, so you are working your way through the academy and you decide to choose an MOS. And for those who don't know, MOS means military occupational specialty. Your job, your J-O-B is basically what an MOS is. So <laughs> why don't you, we just say that? Just just our job. <laughs> I know because the military, we make it, we make it so hard. We have to make everything so unique. You decide to become an explosive ordnance disposal officer, probably the most dangerous job in the world. How does that come about? Not linearly, I'll say that. Okay. When I got to the Naval Academy, they started barking in my face and said, what do you want to do after you go to the Naval Academy? What kind of service do you want to do? What's your job? And I kind of just looked at them like, my job's to be in the Navy. Like, I don't know. <laughs> what do you want me to say? I <laughs> You want me to pick? I, I don't know. You tell me. I thought the military would order you around. They call it orders, right? So what are my orders? Just give me orders. They said, no, you have to pick. So I spent a lot of time soul searching, going around, and the Naval Academy and the summer programs do a good job of socializing you across the different arenas of both the Navy and the Marine Corps. And what I loved most was actually scuba diving. I got to go to Navy scuba school. And I went back to the Naval Academy. I said, I found it. I want to be a scuba diver. And they were like, that's not a thing. Now, there is a Navy diving corps, but that's only enlisted and no Naval Academy officers go into the Navy diving community specifically, or at least directly. But it is a prerequisite skill for Navy SEALs and EOD officers. And then around the, my junior year, I went on an EOD summer camp out to San Diego. And on day one of EOD summer camp, I went out with our dolphins. So not a lot of people know this, but we have 
a marine mammal program where the Navy utilizes dolphins and sea lions to do certain things for us. I have heard of this. Yeah, it's real. And it's really cool as far as I'm concerned. It feels so 007. It feels so James Bond. Oh, you know, yeah. Having dolphins work with us on, yeah. <laughs> uh, to take on the bad guys. It really is amazing. It's just really tough giving them a high five because they only have <laughs> fins, you know? So. Yeah. <laughs> But to belabor the story, I go out to Point Loma in San Diego. And the day one of this camp, I go out onto this 21-foot Boston whaler. And this dolphin trainer, like, blows a whistle. And the dolphin jumps out of the water into the boat. And then we drive out, you know, a couple miles from shore where we have a training area, which is basically 300 feet of seawater above a couple mine shapes. Like, they're fake mines. And we train the dolphins on how to find mine shapes at 300 feet. Now, we can't really dive sustainably at that depth, not looking for stuff anyway. So we can use these dolphins to help us find potential mines that have been buried or who have lost their way or found at 300 feet below the surface of the ocean. That was day one of EOD summer camp. The summer camp sold me and I went back to the Naval Academy and said, I'm a, I want to be an EOD officer. And I was really worried I wouldn't have the grades to do it, but I got in by the hair on my chinny chin chin and I'm just really grateful. Wow. They did quite a job on selling EOD because, um, you know, explosive ordnance disposal. It, it's just the sound of it. It's terrifying. I got to see the EOD guys work and I actually saw them work in real life scenarios and I was always impressed and they had such confidence. Oh my gosh. You know, everybody gets a little skittish around the things that go boom. And these guys, well, they, they instilled confidence in everybody around them. Uh, I always felt like when they showed up, everybody could relax. Truly amazing. Now, you get the job of explosive ordnance disposal, and you deploy. And now you find yourself in uh, tricky situations because you're actually having to deal with unexploded ordnance or roadside bombs, improvised explosive devices, IEDs. So did you feel like the training you received prepared you for being in a combat zone? I mean, did you feel like you were ready when you got there? Yeah, for sure. But not always directly. What I think is great about the EOD community and the way that we approach training, we were given frameworks. We were taught how to think, more or less. Not necessarily like, when you see this, this is what you do. That kind of procedural mindset doesn't really work in our community because you're never going to really see exactly the same scenario twice. So what the EOD community teaches you is all the sort of background knowledge you might need on all kinds of explosives, fusings, different ways of deploying weapons, but then also how to manage the scenario on the ground. And again, I felt very prepared in how to think through those scenarios. What became challenging is bringing to bear the tools that you might want to mitigate those hazards. And the way that most people have seen our community is like through the movie, The Hurt Locker, where you've got someone with either a robot or a bomb suit and they have the ability to get down on top of that device and then do something to it to put it in a safer spot. And that was largely my deployment to Iraq. We had a big giant MRAB truck with all kinds of gear, a bomb suit, two robots, all sorts of stuff, water bottle charges, you name it. I've got all these tools to bring to bear. But our mission set doesn't always allow for a giant vehicle and a bomb suit and two robots and water bottle charges. And that was my deployment to Afghanistan, where everything that I'm going to bring to my job as an EOD officer, I have to carry with me. So I really only have a pocket knife and some 550 cord in Afghanistan. I think you just described what every military person who's ever served has experienced. You get wonderful training. We have wonderful equipment. You have all these wonderful things. 
But when you're deployed, when you're out on the street, that stuff just isn't always there. And then you have to improvise, adapt, and overcome, as they say. And you have to be able to make judgment calls and you have to be able to decide what the best course of action is. And it's not always at your leisure. You know, you're moving in a very dynamic environment, a very hostile environment, potentially. Maybe you only have 50% of the information you need, but you still got to act. So there's so many X factors that are brought to bear against what you're doing. Veterans You Should Know will return after the break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. On Brad's second tour overseas, he was on a morning patrol just like the many mornings before. But this day was different. This day, Brad's life changed in an instant. We were on what I would categorize as a routine foot patrol from one place to another in an area of Afghanistan called the Panjway Valley in 2011. And at this particular time, we were not routinely engaging the Taliban in typical firefights. They were in very small numbers. They were hiding a lot. We were very actively trying to find them. But uh, what they were doing a lot was the IED, an improvised explosive device. They were burying tens of them everywhere. Every square mile probably had a handful or so of, of these IEDs. It made our job very difficult. There weren't a lot of places where you could get to with a vehicle and where we were working. And the tactical decision we made was for our foot patrols to always walk like ducks in a row. Like you're always just following the footsteps of the guy or gal in front of you. And out in front of our patrol would always be an EOD tech like myself or my partner Adam clearing with a metal detector. 
And at about 7.30 in the morning, I was halfway back in our patrol, just following along like everybody else. And up at the front of our patrol, there was a big blast plume that shot up into the air. And we train everybody, when a blast like that goes off, don't move. Because where there's one bomb, there's likely many. You know, it was a very common tactic for there to be multiple IEDs around each other. We called them secondaries. When one blast goes off, don't move. Let the EOD tech, myself, use my metal detector to clear some space for a medic to get down to the casualty. So I pulled out my metal detector, ran up to the front, and uh, I was really gratified, though, because I looked over and saw my buddy Adam was just fine. He looked at me about as confused as I was. But what we learned was two Afghan commandos had stepped off of the cleared path and landed on a 40-pound IED, effectively mortally wounding the two of them. But we didn't know that at the time. So Adam and I's job at that point is to clear space, get the medics down to the casualties, and then clear a spot for a helicopter to come in and take those casualties to the hospital. It was really difficult in doing that, and it was pretty chaotic. We also knew that there were insurgents in the area who may now know where we are, so we felt like this sense of urgency to get off the X, as we say. We were able to move the first casualty back about 100 feet where we were intending to bring in a helicopter. And then on my way back to Adam and the second casualty, I made a judgment call in that moment where to get to Adam, I was running across grass. And I remember thinking, what are the chances an IED's been here so long that grass has grown on top of it? And that's exactly what happened. There was a pressure plate buried underneath where grass had grown over. And that's the one I stepped on. I was really lucky in a number of ways the pressure plate was separated from the actual blast itself, uh, and that's what saved my life. Uh, it blew up in front of me, not underneath me, and because of that, it came out of the ground and really just smacked me in the face, as opposed to blowing up underneath me, which surely would have taken off my legs, if not my arms as well. The important part of this story is immediately following the blast, I knew that I had been blown up. I knew that it was likely a 40-pound charge, which is a pretty big explosion. And I had known of other victims of similar-sized explosions who were really in not good shape afterward. And the fact that I actually could still see, I think, a little bit, I looked down and I saw my hands and my feet. There was no obvious damage. I could still see that I had my feet. I still had my arms. And that, in my mind, meant that surely I had died. There was no way that I was intact after that. For me, I felt like time stopped. And I remember thinking, for sure I'm dead, and uh, that's, you know, that's sad. But I, I thought about my whole life, and I thought, I'm proud of the life that I've lived. I died, you know, serving my country, and I think that's honorable. And I'm sad that I won't be able to see my family, but I think that they'll understand. You know, they'll appreciate what I did. And then I actually felt like, for sure, my grandfather's coming to grab me, like, my grandfather who died when I was 11, my hero, he's going to come take me to whatever happens after you die. But then I didn't die. I, I came back. That's just amazing. It's amazing to me that those thoughts were in your mind, that you are actually walking through those thoughts, that whole process after just being blown up in that slowed down, in that shock state probably you were in, you still had the ability to process. And these were the things that occurred to you in that moment. It's unbelievable. Please continue. 
Yeah, and to your point, what's wild about it, it's been a decade now, it's been a long time, and I've been able to piece little things together, and I've talked to Adam, who wasn't far away. All of that occurred in a matter of seconds. So Adam starts yelling at me. He knew that I had been in the blast. He yells. His voice starts coming through the fog to me. I remember yelling back at him. And what's crazy about it is, you know, a moment ago I was okay with dying, and now I'll come back to life, but now I'm really afraid because I knew I had taken the blast. I had taken it to my face. And all of a sudden I was aware that my face isn't right. Something's wrong with it. I'm bleeding. It doesn't feel right. And I remember kind of starting to panic. Like, I don't want to be here. I, I don't want to be in this moment. I'm, I'm afraid of what is happening. And Adam got to me and I remember grabbing him by his kit. And I said, how bad is it? And he said, I'm not gonna lie to you. Your face is pretty effed up, but the rest of you looks fine. Do you think you can stand up? And at that moment, I felt this really strong urge, like disappointment, frustration, anger, all at once, where I committed like the ultimate sin as far as a team member. I made our life worse out there. By stepping on that IED, I was kind of letting my team down to some extent. I'm in the way now. Like we're already in a bad situation. Everybody's life is on the line. And now I'm holding us up. As soon as his partner could clear a landing zone for a medevac helicopter, Brad was airlifted from the blast zone. He went to sleep in Afghanistan and woke up at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, one of the premier military hospitals in the country. With the extent of his injuries, Brad was on heavy painkillers, which on top of the trauma he endured, made for a foggy first few months back stateside. It's really hard to make sense of it all. And it takes a a little while. Like when I first was hurt, I'm like super confused, but I'm picking up little details. I'm obviously back from the battle space. I'm alive. Something's wrong though. So I have to keep going into surgery. I don't know what's wrong, but the surgery is making me better. So that sounds fine. And really you're just so tired. I just want to go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep because of all the drugs. And so I'm kind of like in this constant state of almost like Fight Club, I guess, like the movie, like you're kind of constantly confused and maybe living this multiple life thing. But uh, through those three weeks, I was able to sort of gather I'm blind, but it didn't make sense because I could see everything in my head. But then finally, the surgeons were able to make clear. They were saying, basically, there's one last surgery you're going to have to do. and We're going to hopefully save your vision. I remember asking the surgeon, what are the chances? And he said, you have less than 1% chance of being able to perceive light and dark with your right eye. We have to remove your left so you'll see nothing on the left side. And I was like, less than 1% to perceive light and dark? Like, man, that is not an encouraging prognosis. So I knew that to mean I'm blind. And uh, spoiler alert, that surgery was not a success. I have no light perception whatsoever. But I want to blow past that because for me, the acceptance of the blind thing was certainly not welcome news. But... In comparison to the I thought I died a week ago thing, I was just really happy to be alive. And I was sort of relieved to not be on the battlefield anymore, to know that I wasn't going to have to go back out on any missions. I wasn't taking my life into my own hands. I'm essentially safe now. I'm going to have to figure out this blindness thing. But to the point you made earlier about the military forcing you outside of your comfort zone nearly constantly, 
I felt very confident, like I've figured out a lot of stuff. I figured out how to jump out of aircraft. I figured out how to scuba dive. I figured out how to make things blow up. I figured out how to not make things blow up. I'm gonna be able to figure out this blindness thing. I wanted to get out of the hospital as quickly as possible and start crushing something so that my family and my friends could understand I'm gonna be fine. Yeah, well, this is a powerful mindset you're describing. I mean, it really is, and, and it shouldn't be taken for granted. I mean, to be in your situation and to have that mindset of, okay, I've overcome so many things. I know I'm capable of overcoming things. Now it's my new reality. So that mindset of, okay, well, let's figure it out. Let's get to work. I love that. I absolutely love that because I don't want anybody to take that for granted. I mean, you just lost your sight in a violent fashion, and now you are out there saying, okay, this is my new reality. I accept it. I'm going to push forward. And by the way, you found some amazing ways to do that, to transition and find purpose. Can you describe to me some of those things as you move forward in your journey, as you leave the hospital and leave the military? I got really lucky. 2011 was a while ago, but sadly, we had still been at war for some time, and we had a lot of injured folks going through Walter Reed and somebody a while ago had the great idea that sports is an awesome way for vets to help figure stuff out again after an injury like this and get those competitive juices going and find purpose and go through that adaption loop you just described. Like, let's start figuring it out. Let's start at the basics again. I kind of gravitated towards anybody who was like, let's get going. So I was doing some of my rehab in Florida where I'm from. I was actually at the VA in Tampa, Florida. And on my first trip out of the hospital, a bunch of my old friends were getting together. We had this thing called like First Friday where downtown they like lock off a block and everybody drinks and it's a fun time. And my swim coach was there and he's this gruff older fella. And he just kind of in his own way of not wanting to dwell on the negative part of this instance, he was like, so uh, will I see you at practice tomorrow? And I thought, yeah, it captures what I want to do exactly. I want to just go back to normal as quickly as possible. I'll go to practice. So I showed up literally that next morning and he just blew past anything that had already happened. No, I'm not, I don't want to talk about Afghanistan. I don't want to talk about bombs or anything. I've got it all hooked up for you. I've got this scuba mask that'll go over your eyes because my eyes were still tender and kind of messed up at the time. I got these pool noodles that I can attach to the sides of the pool so you don't bang your head. Now just hop in this lane and go ahead and get going. It was exactly what I wanted. It was a sense of freedom for me. I think my family was able to see like, yeah, he looks like a doofus in that scuba mask, but everything's fine. This is Brad, it's the Brad we know, and I can see that nothing's gonna hold him back sort of thing. I can imagine uh, the sense of independence is back. Yeah. The sense of individualism is back and striving and working and exerting. It all comes back, I bet, when you're in that lane. Yep, exactly. So now you're, you find the water, you find your way back to swimming, which you were obviously a competitive swimmer, and you keep going. Like Forrest Gump, you just kept running. <laughs> you know, you just kept going and you kept climbing. Tell us about that because you made it to the Paralympics and you did quite well. I'm talking to a multi-time gold medalist. I'm fascinated about this part of your journey and, and also not just the physical accomplishments in the water, but the psychological journey as well that goes along with that, if you don't mind sharing. 
no, I, I don't mind at all. And it's a crazy story. And I just wanted to show folks that I'd be all right. And that was kind of where it started. Someone along the way, though, was pretty quick to say, you know, have you thought about going to the Paralympics and something to the effect of, do you realize how lucky you are to be injured in a Paralympic year? And I thought, well, that's a crazy way of looking at this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, that's, but okay. <laughs> sure, okay. And that actually kind of baked in this idea that there was a sense of urgency to get into the Paralympics because, you know, I was injured in September. You sort of needed to have certain things done by that February. And I actually hadn't left the hospital yet. I was still in what they called blind rehab. I was in a VA in Augusta, Georgia, and they were teaching me the various skills of how to be blind. And uh, they were allowing me to leave the hospital again every so often to go swim. I uh, actually went to a swim meet and I got in the Paralympics, we call it get classified. It's not the way we think of it in the military. Classified in the Paralympic sense means a doctor looks at you and assesses what disability category you are. By virtue of the fact that I'm completely blind, I'm what's called an S11 in swimming. That means I compete against other people who are completely blind. Once I was classified, I went to a meet. I swam what I assessed to be a really crappy race. I got out and everyone was super excited because they're like, that was the fifth fastest blind swim of the world this year. Dang, wait up right out of the gate. Yeah, exactly. I was like, well, I can do better than that. I know I can do better than that. <laughs> that kind of got me hooked. And I thought, well, let me get back into my old thing and let me start training at this. And one thing led to another. And before I really realized what was going on, I was in London. The craziness of this whole thing is that on September 7th, 2011, is the day I lost my vision in Afghanistan. Going into the Paralympics in London on September 7th, 2012, I was going to be swimming for Team USA in the 400-meter freestyle, and uh, I won a gold medal for Team USA, and it was just a really crazy way to bring everything full circle and Really, in the best, most extreme way possible, I was able to prove what I wanted to show folks is that this blindness thing is not going to be something that confines me or keeps me from being who I want to be, from being successful or from being a valuable part of society or something along those lines. And that's what I've come to love about the Paralympic movement just in general, is that it really gives athletes of all kinds the ability to inspire that in our society. And it's been so cool. It's been such a cool journey to be on since... 2012. Since taking the leap in the months following his injury, Brad has continued to push towards excellence, training for the Paralympics, competing in multiple games, and bringing home multiple gold medals to show the world there's nothing he can't do. From London to Rio, I felt like if I were a sports fan, of which I am, and I looked at that narrative, that story, I read the Brad Snyder story in, on ESPN.com or whatever, I'd look at that and be like, well, it's clearly a fluke. Like, it was an accident. Maybe the competition wasn't that good that year, or maybe, you know, by virtue of the fact that it was only one year of being blind, maybe he had an advantage. So I wanted to go back to Rio and prove and, like, earn it. You know, dedicate myself to the craft of swimming blind for four years and go back to the Paralympics and crush it. And I was able to do that. I won three golds in Rio and, and <laughs> broke a world record that had been there for a long time. But to your point about like, if you're not growing, you're dying kind of thing. I, I finished that experience and thought, I want to keep going, but I need to redefine the challenge. For me, it's not about winning. I'm not doing this to win. I'm doing this to you know, make myself better and hopefully inspire other people to be better and all of those things. 
So uh, I wanted to redefine the challenge. I got into triathlon to start back at the bottom and work my way up, just like I had learned to do in the military. Day one of triathlon, I know nothing about triathlon. By year five of triathlon, I want to master triathlon. And I certainly don't claim to be a master, but we were able to win a race in Tokyo under high stakes. And that was an incredibly cool experience. Brad is currently pursuing a PhD in public policy at Princeton University with the goal of returning to the Naval Academy as a professor and coach, eager to share his story and lessons learned with the next generation of America's leaders. Throughout this whole conversation that we've just been having, I think you've been really good at pulling out these little moments from my background where I have learned really important lessons on how to not only push myself, but navigate challenges, navigate adversity. And I happen to think that, you know, our future generations of military officers and military personnel really need that sort of stuff to navigate the challenges of tomorrow. And that's my new goal is I want to go back to the academy and coach and teach midshipmen so that when they face those challenges, when they face the same kind of stuff that I faced in Afghanistan, they have the ability, the nuts and bolts of what they need to navigate that and thrive despite it. Brad, your your journey is inspiring. You you've um, put a lump in my throat many times during this conversation because I'm just so in awe of you and your ability to be so positive. Your mindset to have this wonderful growth mindset. I just wish there were more people like you out there. One question, I guess a final question. Is there any other lesson that has struck you? something that is critically important. It's kind of a two-part thought, but they revolve around each other. The thing that I think is the most important that I do remind myself from time to time is I want to start everything from a sense of gratitude. Having a near-death experience, I recognize how precious every day is. Every day I wake up is a day I might not have woken up. And I owe it to all those who have made the ultimate sacrifice and everybody who served, including my grandparents and all that. I owe it to them to make the most of this moment because the moment that I have to live in this country and be free is because of all those sacrifices and I'm grateful. So that's like my point of orientation. And then in sharing that, I know that it's tough sometimes. You're gonna encounter some barriers, some obstacles, and you really need to have something that helps you reignite that passion. And over the years, I've had a lot of different things that have helped me kind of keep going and keep moving forward. and. Something that I was definitely thinking about while I was racing in Tokyo for me was my baby daughter, who's not born yet. I want to be the best dad I can. I want to be the best human possible to be a role model for my daughter, but also like show her the way on, you know, how to take charge and how to navigate adversity and how to own your life in a way that's positive for you. And I call that an anchor thought. You know, everyone's got to have an anchor thought. You said it exactly. Use the right words. We all need something that's gonna light that fire in our heart and keep us going because let's face it like we're all gonna face challenges we're all gonna run up against these barriers and none of us want to let that defeat us so we've got to find a way to break through those things and all of us need a reason to kind of reorient ourselves towards gratitude and making the most of every moment and i'm really excited that uh, i get to share that with my daughter in march that's fantastic gratitude is a cornerstone to any happy life it's absolutely mandatory it's the foundation And it's a good reminder for everyone to have that gratitude. There's always something, no matter how bad it is for you, there's something to be grateful for. Wow, 
Brad, I have enjoyed talking to you today. You have enlightened me on so many things. Your journey is so powerful. Such a great story of triumph, of overcoming in such a major way. I'm talking to a gold medalist right now. I respect <laughs> that so much. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you and your family. Thank you for spending time with me today and, and our listeners and being very open and very honest about your journey, the pain and the triumph. So thank you. God bless you. And keep going. I can't wait to hear what the next chapter is going to be. Thank you so much, Rob. It's been my pleasure. And you too as well. Keep charging. Thanks again to Brad Snyder for his service and for joining us on this podcast. And congratulations to you and your wife on expecting your first child. I have no doubt you will make your daughter incredibly proud. Thanks for listening to Veterans You Should Know. To hear more inspiring stories of perseverance and camaraderie, check out all our episodes, including those from Season 1, featuring veterans who have overcome incredible obstacles and found renewed purpose in their civilian lives. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast. We would love to hear from you. You can listen to the show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Veterans You Should Know is a special four-part series from iHeartRadio and hosted by me, Rob Riggle. Our show is written and produced by Molly Socha, Nakia Swinton, and Jackie Perez with assistance from Quincy Fuller. The show is edited, sound designed, and mixed by James Foster and Matt Stillow.